Again today, I don't think we have anybody in the hospital, but we do have a couple of people in our church that have uh, been in the hospital. Julie Adams got out yesterday after a mild back surgery, and I think she's doing real well. And Joe Fabian uh, is having eye surgery today. Um, let me pray for them. Father, we thank you for the food and the fellowship and the time that we have to get together. We think of Joe Fabian and ask that as she is having this surgery today that it would go well for her and that it would give really long-term improvement to her vision and that you would um, use this to give her a more freedom in her day-to-day -day living, keep her well. And we pray for Julie Adams after this surgery and in the process of recovery that you would give her uh, freedom from pain and freedom of mobility and that you would continue to bless her. We thank you for her faithfulness to our church, and we pray your blessing on her recovery. We continue to pray for all the things that are going on uh, domestically in our culture where we hate to see all the turmoil. We hate to see all of the uh, polarization of people, the hurtful words that are being said, and we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit to bring healing to our nation bring people to faith in Christ, bring them to be faithful followers of Christ. And we think of all that we see going on and all the threats of uh, revolution and all of the things that are going on in the Mideast, and we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to convert people out of their spiritual bondage and darkness into the Prince of Peace's life in Christ Jesus. Now we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you look at me with Romans 7, we're talking about the spiritual life, basically the life that cannot be seen uh, even by us, but we know that is a reality that's going on within us. And today we want to talk about the law's spiritual work in our lives. Now we think of the law, we think of the Ten Commandments, and we see that that law uh, was normative in the Old Testament, it remains normative in the New Testament, and we need to understand how God uses the law. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the law. The Holy Spirit, all through the Old Testament, inspired the prophets to write correction to the people of Israel in reference to the law, and the books of wisdom are the Holy Spirit's working in the lives of people to look at life, look at the law, and then to bring this to a spiritual application where the rubber meets the road of their lives. And then when we look at the Psalms, we see especially the longest book of the Bible, or the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119, which is an acrostic, and in the sense of it being an acrostic, it is meant to be an exhaustive application of understanding of the spiritual life of the law in the life of the believing person. When we come to the, uh, the New Testament, we see Jesus saying, I did not come to destroy the law, but that the law might be fulfilled. And he says, if a person uh, says of the law that it is to be minimized or if the law is to be set aside, 
that person is going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven if the person, on the other hand, magnifies properly the sense of the law and teaches the law as it should be taught, that person's going to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Those are Jesus' words. Now, when we look at Romans 7, we see that Paul is talking about the law, and primarily he's talking about the Christian's relationship to the condemnation that the law brings. So what we're trying to talk about now is where and what happens to the condemnation that the law brings to a person when they become a believer. So let me read some of this. We will deal with this over a couple of weeks. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound to the, by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man uh, while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she'd freed from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for the death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say to this? The law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandments might become uh, sinful beyond measure. So we're talking about now uh, how Paul deals with the law in the life of the believer, especially in the area as it relates to the law condemning us. Now, when we look at the book of Romans as a whole, this New Testament letter is given by Paul in the most formal, systematic sense of an exposition of the Christian life, or what Francis Schaeffer in his book calls true spirituality. 
if we were to take any of the New Testament epistles and say, okay, which one would we want most if we were to try to understand the comprehensiveness of the spiritual life best, then the choice would have to fall that we would want the book of Romans. So the Romans letter is meant to introduce us to a comprehensive understanding of the spiritual life. Now, to properly understand any of the New Testament, we have to begin with the person of Jesus. And this is the way of Paul uh, in every one of his letters, and you see it's this way in, in Romans 7 in particular. So Paul's way is to look at Jesus and ask the question, as a teacher, what did Jesus teach? That's the way Paul has us to think. Look at Jesus. What did Jesus teach? Now think about that and and follow his teaching. Or he might say it this way, look at Jesus, look at him as a person, look at the kind of life that he lived. Now that's a model for you. You need to work to follow Jesus' example in the way he lived. But then even beyond that, and more in a sense in this particular passage that we're looking at, um, we might say, as the Messiah. Paul might say, as the Messiah, the God-man, what was Jesus' purpose, and what did Jesus come to accomplish? And then we need to see, what did Jesus do? What did he accomplish? What was the finality of his work? And we find that in the book of Romans. Now, to further understand this, we have to understand when we talk about Jesus' teaching, the apostles' teaching, or the New Testament, if we would say it that way, that we need to think, we need to rely on, but especially, and especially in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at, we need to learn to submit to the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes to a person, and the Holy Spirit comes to a person to accomplish in us all that Jesus accomplished for us. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. So you could say, well, Jesus accomplished this for us. Great. Now understand that what Jesus accomplished for us, the Holy Spirit is about the business of accomplishing those very same things in each and every believer and he's doing it all the time. But there's a necessity. We need to submit ourselves. Well, Paul says in, in Romans 12, Therefore, present your members to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove to do the things, well, that God would have you to do. So the Holy Spirit is now working in us to accomplish everything that Jesus accomplished for us. Uh, a real practical way of looking at this. Uh, we're called to live the Christian life. You know, some of you find, I find, certain aspects of living the Christian life, some of the aspects of being a pastor in this particular church are very difficult. Uh, they're trying. Uh, sometimes they're even almost close to impossible. Uh, well, okay. 
I, I think I hint, I got the hint that you think I'm impossible, but that's another, that's a different sermon and someone else will have to preach that. But, but, but it is, it, it is impossible. Now, we have a man that just retired from our denomination's service. For many years, a man named Paul Koistra served our denomination, first as the president of Covenant Seminary, then he served our denomination as the head of our world mission organization. Well, at our last General Assembly, there was a little bit of a Q&A, and, and somebody, knowing that Paul probably wouldn't be in this position as the chairman of the uh, Mission to World next year, they just threw out a question. And he said, Dr. Koistra, how is it that you've been able to accomplish so much? How is it that you've been able to do all the things that you do? Now, what a testimony. And he said it very succinctly. He says, well, gentlemen, it's like this. I've found that the Holy Spirit, when I ask him for help, the Holy Spirit gives me help. Now, that's what we need to understand. We need help in living the Christian life. We ask the Holy Spirit for help, and we find that he gives us help. He gives us help in temptation. He gives us help in struggles. He gives us help in, in doing impossible things. He comes to help us, to glorify Jesus and to accomplish in us those things that seem impossible. You see all those things that Jesus was faced with? How many of those things that Jesus was faced with were humanly impossible? And you say, well, just a whole bunch of them. Well, he's called us to do even greater works than he did. And we go out into the world to serve him, and you can expect that you're going to run into things that are difficult. You're going to expect that you're going to be tempted to sin. You're going to expect, you need to expect that he's not going to just make it easy for you in every single thing because he wants to demonstrate Jesus' power, his own power in us. So when we go forth to serve him in a manner like this, we're going to find that it's going to be contested. And so we can attempt to do these things in our own strength, and we will not do well. I'm not saying we won't do them, but whatever we do, we'll have a human explanation. But there will be things like that will happen to us, like happened in the life of Dr. Koistra. They were unbelievable things, but he did them, but he didn't take credit for them. He said that the Holy Spirit worked in him, answered his prayers, and enable them to do all of these things. And then when, when the things that we do don't have a human explanation, then people see Jesus in us. That's how that works. Now, when we look at this passage of Scripture, I want to talk to you about the whole nature of guilt. Where is guilt for you? So Paul is talking here in Romans 7 about the law. And he's talking about the law bringing condemnation. But when he talks about this in a, um, a, a long personal illustration that um, begins there in, let's see, verse 7, he, he's talking about 
what had happened to him primarily prior to his meeting Jesus. Now, here was Paul. So I want you to think about him before he was converted. Now, he gives us, in a number of his epistles, pictures of this, snapshots of this. We see aspects of it outlined for us in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Saul of Tarsus was there watching the coats of the people who stoned Stephen in giving his hearty approval to the stoning of Stephen. We know in the book of Acts that Saul of Tarsus, according to his own words in 1 Timothy 1, was a violent aggressor and a persecutor of the church in Jewish people who had converted to become Christians. We see that of him. Now, we see that aspect, but in the book of Philippians, Paul tells us about himself, and he's beginning to say, okay, I was born in Tarsus. I was uh, raised in a Jewish Hebrew home. I became a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee's Pharisee. I was even far advanced beyond all my contemporary Pharisees. I was doing all of these things. And then he says this. And according to the law, Saul says of himself, according to the law, I was blameless. Now, that's a big statement. Paul is talking about himself, but he's talking about his view of himself. Not his view of himself when he wrote the book of Philippians. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about his view of himself before he became a believer. In my own view of myself, before I became a believer, I saw myself in relation to the law as blameless. Now, in honesty, I think of the, oh, who was little Joe Cartwright? What was his name? Michael Landon. What was his background religiously? He was a Jew. Now, what was his view at the end of his life? No. I am a Jewish person. I don't need Jesus. I've really never done anything that's all that bad. That was Michael Landon's personal perspective on himself immediately before he died. Well, you know, Saul was self-deceived. We come across plenty of people, Jewish and non-Jewish, who are equally self-deceived. That was his view of himself. All right. What happened is then explained to us, and probably what Paul's talking about that's happening here in verses 7 down through maybe verse 13, 
These things probably happened to Paul immediately before his Damascus Road experience. That's what we basically think of when we see these verses of his own biography here. Now, what he's saying is something like this. If the law, if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known of sin. Now, the law is a means for you, before you're a believer, and even after you're a believer, to know about your sin. That's what he's saying here. Now, he doesn't deal with this just generally, but he begins to deal with it specifically. Now, we've been talking about the idea of spirituality. Now, if, if I were to happen to hear you on the phone and you were talking with a great deal of impatience and a great deal of just tiredness toward your old mother or father. I could come to the conclusion by hearing that that you are disobeying what? The commandment to do what? Honor. I could see that. Fair enough? Observable? All right. Now, if you did actually pull that thing out, and as they say in the gangster world, put a cap in somebody, and they expired, I would have seen you do what? Murder. Now, if I happen to see, you know, I, I just showed up sometime down at the beach and I was checking in with my wife and kids to the motel and I saw you and somebody of the opposite sex coming out of a motel room and I knew it wasn't your brother or sister it might lead me to think that I just saw somebody that's involved in what? Adultery. And if I saw you like I can remember seeing myself, I can still see myself down in Florida before air conditioning, people didn't keep candy bars on the shelf. Now you may not have known that. Maybe they did the same thing here in Macon, but they had those little box freezers where they kept the you know, popsicles in? Well, that's where they kept the Milky Ways. And if I would have seen you do what I did on a number of occasions and reach in there and take that and go like this and walk out, maybe pay for one but take two, I would think that I'd seen you what? Steal. And if I heard you talking about fishing and I knew it was this long and you said it was this long, 
I could see that. Now, let's just pretend that we're sitting out front and the car of your dreams rolls by slow. And maybe I can't see that you cut your eyes left and follow it across the screen of your vision to the right. And I can't see in your heart and mind that what are you doing for that car? Coveting. Can I see in the normal course of human events you covet? Can I see that? Nope. Because it's what? Between you and, and it's spiritual. You see that? The other things are observable. Coveting is almost entirely spiritual. Now what Paul's saying here, I wouldn't known that that was wrong before God. Now, do you think prior to his coming to this awareness that he had read the Tenth Commandment? Do you think he had? Well, what does he mean, come to know? What does he mean, come to know? Well, I think it means something like this. If any of you were raised in a church like I was, I can remember coming home from John Knox Presbyterian Church in Orlando. I was preschool. I said to my mother and father, I don't know who my brother is. His name was Ralph. I says, but I know who I am. I'm John 3.16. Now, I can remember saying that. I I said that to mom and dad. I just learned it at Sunday school. I came home and says, I don't know who Ralph is. He's not in the Bible anywhere I know about. John 3.16, I've got that one. That's me. Okay. There I am. Now, until age 22, it isn't pretty. It's not pretty. Now, at age 22, how many times do you think I've heard the Ten Commandments? You know, we're Presbyterian Church. What do you say every once in a while in your responsive readings? You've got a Presbyterian minister and a Presbyterian Sunday school and a Presbyterian vacation Bible school and a Presbyterian Vespers and a Presbyterian Wednesday evening service. What do you think you're hearing two or three or four times a year minimum? You're hearing the Ten Commandments. Don't you think I could have basically told you, you know, no idols, (laughs) none of this, Lord's Day, honor your mom and dad, don't want any murdering, don't want it. I could have done that. I knew the law. Paul knew the law. But there came a point in time when the Holy Spirit, now, The Holy Spirit inspired the Ten Commandments. The Holy Spirit inspired the the prophets to write in reference 
to the Ten Commandments, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, all of it in reference to the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus says, great is the person who teaches these things and teaches people properly how to obey these things. They'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So at some point in time, what happened to Saul of Tarsus happened to me. The Holy Spirit opened my eyes and opened his eyes to coveting. Now, when he saw what coveting was, he knew it wasn't something that his fellow Pharisees could ever critique him on that subject. But he knew that God knew everything about the coveting that was in his life. God knew about it all. Now, when he came to understand this, Francis Schaeffer's perspective is this, that when he came to understand this, he realized that he, as Saul of Tarsus, was displeased and unsatisfied with God. He wanted more or something that he didn't possess, and God was withholding it from him, and therefore... Saul of Tarsus knew through coveting that he had violated the first three commandments. Saul of Tarsus knew that because he was a legalistic, moralistic, heavy-handed Pharisee, that he had abused the other people of God, especially in Sabbath day keeping, where the Lord made the Sabbath for man and not man for the Sabbath, Saul knew that he had reversed that and that he was making man for the Sabbath and not the Sabbath for man to enjoy. So he violated that. He knew that he'd been involved in Stephen's murder. He knew that he had done things that were in his own way adulterous in his eyes. He knew that he had stolen from God. He knew that he had misrepresented. He had told lies about God through coveting that nobody can see. Saul knew how much of the Ten Commandments had he broken. All of it. And When he knew this, he knew he was condemned. So he uses repeatedly in this language in verses 9, 10, and 11, death died, it killed me. The law, working with the Holy Spirit, brought Saul of Tarsus to the end of himself. The pride of life, which was the pride of Saul of Tarsus, died when he understood coveting. That's what we're being told here. Now, we're told by Saul that he was united 
to the resurrection of Christ. So let's look at from that for a second. He was united to the resurrection of Christ. And as a result of being united to the resurrection of Christ, Christ had died to the law, Christ had taken the condemnation of the law, and now he can write in chapter 8, verse 1, for those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. So if he has died through the resurrection of Christ, he's made alive by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has brought Saul to an entirely new life that is spiritual. He's not going to depend on the letter of the law. He's going to depend upon the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to lead him to be not according to the law, but according to the likeness of Christ. And this is where Saul moves us to. Now the question becomes for us, have we asked Christ to come into our life because we know that the law has condemned us of our sin and there's no way forward in ourselves? If we've asked Christ to come into our life because there's no way forward in and of ourselves, then he has answered that prayer and he has come into our life and we're united to his death and he takes the condemnation of the law upon himself. That's what we see in Isaiah 53 and all of the other New Testament passages that seek to understand the death of Christ. But we're also now united to the Holy Spirit through the resurrection. I'll just reference you to Romans 1 verse 4, that it is through the spirit of holiness that Christ was raised from the dead. And the spirit of holiness comes into us at the time of our new birth and raises us to newness of life, to a life of holiness by the direction and by the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired the Ten Commandments. And all of a sudden, we find we want to walk in the manner of Christ. We want to walk in the teaching of Christ. And we want to walk in the power of Christ. And we find, even though these things used to be very difficult for us to do, that we don't do them anymore. I told you it was going to happen, and I'll close with this, but it did happen. It happened in the last two weeks. I told you because of all the rocks that I turn over looking around for cars, at some point in time I'm going to walk through a deal, and somebody is not going to know what they got. And it's going to become like, mm, mm, mm. And I did. So I'm talking to this man, and he's got two Porsches. And he wants to get one of them back on the road. And I told him be glad to help him. I says, what's the other one? He says, it's a 72 911S. It's real rusty, no motor, no transmission. He says, I'll give you that car if you'll help me get the other one back on the road. I was like Tar Baby. Tar Baby, he be saying what? <laughs> Nothing. I knew better than to open my mouth. So I got on the phone that next week, and I called my friend Charles, who's a Porsche auto broker down in Savannah. I said, Charles, I got this buddy, and he's got a 72 911S, no motor, no transmission. It's pretty rusty. 
says, Charles, what do you think? He says, well, he's always very condescending and cute in the way he speaks. He says, well, John, you and I both know that car is worth between twenty dollars and $28,000. I says, that's what I thought. <laughs> now, what do you want me to do, boys and girls? What do you want, what do you want me to do? Huh? Guy offered, going to give it to you, John. You can have that car if you'll help me get this one on the road. There you go. <laughs> you know the devil was in here somewhere. He's in the front table. <laughs> so I called Bobby up. I said, Bobby, I called an auto broker of mine. He tells me your 72911S is worth twenty to $28,000. I don't think you need to be giving it to me. Is that what you wanted me to do? Is that what you wanted me to do? That's what Jesus wants you to do. That's what Jesus wants you to do. That's the Holy Spirit. It happens to you every day. Something like that happens to you every single day. You've got a choice. You can be legalistic. You'll excuse yourself. Or you'll be spiritual, and you'll say, I'm going to do what I know I need to do. And that's what you'll do. That's a Christian. That's what we need to be doing. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful there's no condemnation to us who are in Christ Jesus. But we're also thankful that you just didn't take the law away. We wouldn't know right from wrong. But you gave us the Holy Spirit that inspired the law to help us to know how to obey the law. But not in our own strength by the power of the Holy Spirit, to do impossible things, to do difficult things. But you allow us to do these things because we want to please Christ. Now bless us in this. Help us in all of these things. In Christ's name, amen.